0: Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for bio and health at A16Z. In this episode, we talked with Jakob Uzkarait, formerly of Google Brain and the co-founder of Inceptive. Jakob is also one of the authors on the seminal AI research paper, Attention is All You Need, which we'll link in the show notes. Jakob sat down with DJ Pandey, founding partner of A16Z Bio and Health, to talk about all things AI, from his time at Google Brain, to how humans and computers process language, to Inceptive's belief in the promise of RNA, and how Jakob believes we're entering inflection point territory with AI. It's an episode you don't want to miss, but it's also a graduate-level discussion on AI, so we'll be publishing a transcript alongside the episode. Let's get started.
1: So, Jakob, thank you so much for being on uh, BioEats World.
2: It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Especially since you have such a fascinating story as a computer scientist and entrepreneur and founder, I'd love for you to walk us through your career journey, starting wherever you want, but I mean, uh, especially how, you know, what got you to Google Brain is probably
2: a nice place to start. I remember to some extent really uh, encountering this problem of uh, you know, machine learning, maybe in the broadest sense and language understanding, somewhat more specifically as a uh, an issue that runs into the family. So my dad is a computer scientist, and computational linguist, and, you know, growing up, things like uh, Turing machines weren't necessarily entirely foreign concepts fairly early on. Yeah, it sounds like it might have been dinner table conversation. In fact, they were dinner table conversations. And so especially if I had automata uh, you know, and how they actually relate to vending machines were, were, you know, common topics. The older I got, the more I wanted to ensure that I actually ended up doing something different. Uh, and so I ended up looking uh, quite a bit into uh, pure math uh, and, and related areas there. Really focused quite a bit on optimization, on optimization algorithms, algorithms overall broadly, complexity theory, uh, before realizing that maybe that wasn't the most practical thing. Uh, and the most applicable thing, which, you know, kind of has become a bit of a red thread uh, throughout my career. And then literally stumbling upon a, a Google internship back in 2005, uh, I was given a few different options, what kind of research projects to join. Um, among them were different computer vision efforts, um, but also a, the machine translation project um, yeah. that basically became Google Translate um, right around that time, or, you know, just a little bit prior to that. Uh, launched its first product that was really powered by by Google internal systems that were developed. And in a certain sense, much to my dismay, it turns out that Google Translate at the time by far had the most interesting large-scale algorithms problems. At the time, it was really interesting actually to see because what what convinced me to then abort my PhD uh, and actually come back to Google after that internship was really that it became evident in, in my time there that if you wanted to work on something in machine learning that was not only interesting and, let's say, intellectually and scientifically uh, exciting challenging and stimulating, but that also had really high hopes of moving the needle right away in industry and in products, there really, around that time, were not very many places in the world, and, yeah. and they certainly were not academic labs at the yeah. time, and, but very much uh, places like Google, and, and really Google there and then was actually very much at the forefront of this. And so, you know, at the time, I thought it was amazing to run my first large-scale clustering algorithms on a thousand machines, and in some And it was just absolutely impossible to do so elsewhere. Yeah. What was the environment
1: like? You know, when you talk to our our senior colleagues, uh, there's much uh, romanticism of the Bell Labs heyday. And uh, I've always wondered whether Google Brain may be one of the closer variants today. Like, what was the environment like? So I feel actually between
2: that time and when Google Brain really got started, which is about... Five years later, um, there was a significant shift. Before Brain got started uh, in in Translate, it was much more driven by products that truly made a difference than I believe Bell Labs was. Yeah, and we had a good number of, of Bell Labs alumni, of course, uh, among us, but it was much more motivated by direct applicability, and and so it was which which to me was actually really amazing to to see and to you know witness how machine translation turned from what was good for laughs at a party, quite mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. Um, they, they asked you, well, where do you work? And this said, Google. And then they said, what do you do there? And they were impressed at first. And then you said, oh, I work on Google Translate. And then they laughed and asked, well, does ever work? I don't think so. But then at the same time, as I, I would say that wave of machine learning, right the pre-deep learning renaissance uh, wave of machine learning, um, started to plateau. You know, deep learning was something I'd done previously at school, but it you know, I, I liked it, but it was not something that you could really apply on those days. Yeah, especially
1: because you didn't have the scale at academia to do the calculations you need to do presumably. Certainly not in academia,
2: but even at Google, even though at the time in Translate, actually, the most interesting distinguishing feature was that I would say uh, we really believed in the absolute power of data at the end of the day. So we were trying not to make more complicated, more sophisticated algorithms uh, but instead actually simplify and scale them as much as possible and then uh, enable them to really train on more and more data. But we just hit a seedling there. The simplifications you had to actually uh, make in order to scale them to what was at the time Google scale, that was really our, our aim. But then, and that was kind of one of these pendulum uh, movements swinging, swinging back out of academia. Out of academia, a bunch of folks with a bunch of GPUs, deep learning came back in a certain sense with a vengeance. Yep. and uh, and then and suddenly the environment adapted because it was unclear what the direct path would be at scale into production, uh, and so the entire environment shifted from being more application and product oriented into something that at least felt for quite a few years much more academic, it's still a little different than academic labs because we could afford way more GPUs, um, but but much more in line in a certain sense with this idea of you know, driven by publications, driven by yeah, leaps rather than steps, I would say, turned into a more uh, very, very productive and really amazing, but much more open-ended.
1: Well, you know, speaking of publications, I think uh, a natural place to think about is when you and the team published uh, Tension's All You Need. And, you know, that's been such a seminal paper for uh, all, so much of generative AI since uh,
2: that's when the transformer algorithm uh, was first laid out. And So two years prior to to publishing that paper, we realized that what was then state of the art in uh, um, problems like or for problems like machine translation uh, or was emerging as state of the art, namely LSTM or RNN based uh, to seek overall as a as a training paradigm and as a as a setup, but also as a network architecture had incredible issues, even on the most modern at the time GPUs when it came to scaling in terms of data. So, for example, the very first called uh, Neural Machine Translation System that Google launched, GNMT, um, was actually, to my knowledge, never really trained on all training data that we had available, um, that we had previously mined for the phrase-based statistical systems. And and that was really because the algorithms just didn't scale well in terms of uh, the amount of data. And so, long story short, we actually were looking at the time, not at machine translation, but at problems where internally at Google we had even larger amounts of training data available. So these were problems that came out of search, uh, where you know basically you had another three, four orders of magnitude, you know, there's now not billions of words anymore, but trillions easily. And wow. suddenly we had this we encountered this pattern where simple feed forward networks, even though they made ridiculous simplifying assumptions such as. You know it's just a bag of words or it's just a bag of bigrams and you you kind of average them and you send them through a big uh, mlp they actually outperformed rnns and lstms at least when trained on more data and they were n times faster easily 10 20 times faster to train and so you could train them on way more data in some cases 100 times faster to train and so we kept consistently actually ending up with models that were simpler and that couldn't express or capture certain phenomena that we know are definitely common in language. And yet you know, bottom line, they were cheaper to train and performed better.
1: Well, let's just give an example for people who aren't familiar. Like, so for bag of words, if I said, uh, show me all the restaurants nearby, except for Italian, uh, it'll show right. you all the Italian restaurants. Right? Exactly.
2: And in, in fact, I think what you said can probably be re- reordered into show me all Italian restaurants, except nearby. And yes. so right? it's just a soup of words and you can yes, reorder yes. it into something that definitely means something different. Yes. and then you approximate getting at the structure and getting at you know the more global phenomena by putting in you know bigrams, so basically groups of two consecutive words and things like that. but but it's clear that uh, you know certain in languages like like German where you can basically you know put the verb into the very end of a sentence, no and matter it changes what... changes all meaning right it changes all meaning exactly. no yes. matter what the size of your n-grams are or your your little word groups. Uh, uh, you will ultimately not succeed. And it became clear to us that there has to be a different way that doesn't require the RNN's recurrence in length or recurrence in sequence of say, words or pixels for that matter, but that actually processes inputs and outputs in a more parallel way. And really ultimately catering to the strengths and, of modern accelerator hardware.
1: You Think about it, like a bag of words is words in random order. Like uh, yeah. LSTM, uh, long, long, short-term memory, maybe gives you some sort of looking past a bit, right? Yep. But transformers does something radically different. How does transformers take that to the next level?
2: There are always two ways of looking at this. One is through the lens of efficiency. But the other way that's maybe a bit more intuitive is to look at it in terms of, you know, how much context can you maintain? Yeah. And And just like you said, LSTMs or or recurrent neural networks in general, they they move through their inputs uh, step-by-step, broadly speaking, and while they, in theory, are able to maintain arbitrarily long context windows into, in quotes, the past, what happens in practice is that it's actually very difficult for them to identify events, say words or pixels, that are very distant in the past that really Affect the meaning at the end of the day, and they tend to focus on things that are in the, you know, in the vicinity. Um, the transformer, on the other hand, basically just turns that in a certain sense on its head and says, "No." At every step, what we're doing is not moving through the input. At every step, we're looking at the entirety of the input or output, for that matter, and we're basically incrementally revising representations of every word or every pixel or every patch actually maybe more appropriately of an image or or every frame of a video um as we as we basically move not in input space but in representation space yes and that idea had some drawbacks in terms of how you would fit it onto um onto modern hardware but compared to recurrent neural networks it primarily had advantages because now you were not actually bound to sequentially compute representations say, word for word. Um, But what you were bound by is really how good should they be? How many layers of this kind of parallel processing of all positions where everything, where all pairs of, say, words or all pairs of image patches can interact right away? How many revisions of these representations can I actually, in quotes, afford? Yeah. What's really interesting, too,
1: is that obviously the inspiration is natural language, but that there are many structures uh, that you'd want to input where you don't want to just study it Sequentially, like a DNA yep. sequence, and we'll get into biology Absolutely. soon enough. But that Absolutely. that you want to have a model of the whole thing, and it's just kind of funny with language when I'm speaking or when I'm listening to you, I am processing each word, but eventually I have to not just tokenize the words and into individual meanings, but I have to sort of develop this representation. Yes, I wish we could do it the way transformers do, uh, and but and maybe that's the the trick is that LSTMs are closer to the way we maybe humans do it. And transformers are maybe just so right the way we should do it, or I wish we could do it.
2: S- superficially, I think that is true. Although at the end of the day, or introspective arguments like these are, are subtle and tricky. So I guess many of us know this phenomenon where you are shouting uh, uh, or yelling with someone, trying to communicate something across a busy street. And so you hear something they say, and it's not a, it's not a short sequence of words. And you basically didn't understand anything. But then, like a half a second later, you suddenly understood the entire sentence. It actually hints at the fact that while we are forced to write and utter language in a sequential manner just because of the arrow of time at the end of the day, it is not so clear that our um, deeper understanding really runs in that uh, sequential manner.
1: The, if, if anyone studies, uh, even just the, the attention is all you need paper or, or how a transformer works, there's a lot of parts to it. And, and it seems like it's probably now gone past the point where one person could effectively do that work by themselves in any Uh, short period of time. And so now you really need a team of people to do these types of things. And so what's the sociology
2: of that? How does, how does something like that come about? At this, in this particular case, I personally feel is a really wonderful example of something that fits a more, let's say, industrial approach uh, to scientific research, uh, exceptionally well. Because you're, you're exactly right. This this wasn't the one big spark of imagination and of creativity that, that sets this all off, but it was really a whole bunch of um, contributions that were all necessary. Uh, ultimately, you know, having an environment, a library, uh, which later also was open sourced uh, by the name of Tensor to Tensor, that actually included implementations, and, and not just any implementations, but exceptionally good implementations, fast implementations of all sorts of you know let's call them deep learning tricks. But then also all the way to you know these kind of uh, say attention mechanisms that came out of uh, previous uh, publications, say like this the decomposable attention model published before, but then actually were combined. Uh, also, with improvements and innovations, uh, inventions around optimizers. You won't find people, I think, who truly are among the world's leading experts in all of these simultaneously and who are really also similarly passionate about all of these aspects. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, and, and, and especially there's the initial idea, there's the implementation of it, there's the scaling exactly. of it. To reach that type of scale anywhere else other than in a large company would. Right now, it's probably not feasibly done in academia just
2: because of the the cost. Yeah, I would think actually maybe the large company aspect is not quite that crucial. Yeah, okay. The company aspect is maybe one that I would value higher. The large company certainly doesn't hurt if you need thousands and thousands of TPUs or GPUs or or what have you. So deep pockets never hurt for this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I believe the incentive structure uh, around this kind of explorative research in industry, is just much better suited for these kinds of projects. And I think that's actually something we're seeing looking at, say, generative AI projects across yeah. across the board.
1: Yeah, and to your point,
2: it, uh, it could be a startup. It could definitely be a startup. And and again, yeah. we, I think we, we are seeing that now that using accelerator hardware is becoming at least more affordable. And there are startups that are very much competing, uh, say, when it comes to generative AI targeted at image generation or text generation.
1: I'd love to transition into sort of closer to what you're doing now. And so you're the CEO of uh, Inceptive, a company that applies AI to RNA biology for RNA therapeutics. How did you transition into the life sciences? Superficially, like talking about language models around the dinner conversation and then around the Google cafeteria. It seems like that might be a jump to the next generation of, of therapeutics. How did that all come about?
2: I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's an amazing learning experience. Uh, from my end. For quite a while now, biology struck me as such a problem, where it doesn't seem inconceivable that there are bounds to how far we can go in terms of, say, drug development and drug design with you know, traditional biology as the backbone of, of how we go about designing or, or discovering methods to design the drugs of the future. And it seems that deep learning, in particular, at scale, is for for... bunch of reasons, potentially a really apt tool here. And and one of those reasons actually is is something that is often not necessarily good as as an advantage, which is, you know, the fact that it's this big black box that you can just throw at something. And it's not true that you can just throw it at something. You do have to know how to throw it. And and it's not exactly black either. We can argue about that later. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But at the end of the day, and again, coming back to maybe the analogy to language, we've never managed to fully, in that sense, understand and conceptualize language to the extent that you could claim, oh, I will now go and tell you this theory behind language. And then afterwards, you will be able to implement an algorithm that, in quotes, understands it. We've never yeah. gotten to that point. At some, at, Instead, we had to abort and go take a step back. And in my opinion, to some extent, admit to ourselves that that might not have been uh, the most pragmatic approach and that instead we should try approaches that don't require that level of conceptual understanding. And I think the same might be true for parts of biology.
1: Well, it's interesting. And we've talked about things like this before there. You know, you think about like the last century, last century was very much, it feels like the century of physics and calculus and uh, that there's a certain mentality there where there's a way you can have a very elegant simplification of things. That yes. you can have a single equation like Einstein's field equations that describes yes. so much. And that's a very simple equation in a very complex language. Y- you've talked about how that Feynman approach, almost like the sociology of physics, may not apply here in biology.
2: Right. It, it may not apply, if, I mean, at least for two reasons I can see at this point. Well, number one is there are too many players involved. And while it's true that, you know, maybe we can just reduce it all to Schrodinger's equation and, and just just solve it. It just so happens to be not only intractable computationally, but also we would have to know about all these different players, and we currently do not—not even—not even close. So that's that's one aspect, and then the second one is basically the intractability computationally, right? Where um, the reduction in a certain sense has gone so far that while it brings it all back to one single thing, um, it doesn't help us in that sense because our computational approaches currently to going to basically use those fundamentals in order to make predictions or just too slow to make those predictions for systems large enough to really matter to life.
1: Yeah. So it's not an end body equation, but yet there's still this sense of formalism. I mean, maybe it's a more data-driven formalism or more Bayesian formalism. How does that feed into sort of what you would want to do? How does that feed into applying AI and other types
2: of uh, new algorithms? I think there are a couple of different aspects. At the end of the day, One of the big takeaways, in my opinion, from what we're currently seeing in generative AI is that we don't anymore have to train on data that is not only perfectly clean, but also precisely from the domain and from the kinds of tasks that you would later like to tackle. But instead, it might actually be more beneficial or even the only way that we've so far found to actually try to train on everything you find that's even remotely related and then uh, use use information effectively gleaned from those data in order to then, or end up with so-called foundation models uh, that you can then fine-tune to all sorts of specific tasks using much smaller, much more tractable amounts of cleaner data. And I think we slightly underestimate what we have to know about the phenomena at large in order to build a very good lang- large language model you have to understand that there is this thing called the internet and has a lot of text in it you have yeah. to understand quite a bit actually about how to find this text what isn't text and so forth in order to then basically distill from it the training data that you then actually use and i believe there will be very directly analogous uh, challenges around biology the big question is what are experiments that we can scale such that we can observe life uh, at sufficient scale with just about enough fidelity, but much less specificity when keeping in mind the problems that you're trying to solve eventually, such that we can basically take from that the data that we need in order to start building these foundation models that we can then use fine-tuned and specifically engineered to really go after the you know approach to the problems that we really want to tackle. And so the data generation part is certainly one of them architectures and effectively having models and and network architectures that mimic what we do know about, you know, say the physics underneath will still remain an incredibly powerful way of actually saving computation and also reducing the still enormous appetite for data that these models will have to have uh, to, to, I think, a feasible level. One thing that I believe is actually interesting to note is that a lot of the current applications of models say transformers um, that have found to scale pretty well in, in other modalities other domains language vision uh, image generation etc cetera, etc cetera, and applying them to to biology basically ignores the fact that we know that there is such a thing as time and that the laws of physics at least to the best of our knowledge don't seem to just change over time and right. so the process of say a protein folding Right. Ignoring the fact that there's tons and tons of players, chaperones and whatnot, is actually, in a certain sense, a fairly arbitrarily separated problem from the remainder of protein kinetics. It's just as much kinetics as, as the remainder of the kinetics for the remainder of the life of, of, of that protein, of, of that molecule. Uh, and so why do we try to train models specifically for one and, you know, potentially at least uh, ignore data that we might have about the other? Um, And in this case, maybe more specifically, you know, are maybe some of the protein structure prediction models that we have today, do they already learn something about kinetics implicitly because of the fact that they slowly start to embrace, you know, the existence of time slowly.
1: One of the interesting things I think about where you stand right now is that with a few rare exceptions, most of deep neural networks or other types of AI in, in biology feels like it's taking something invented somewhere else and carrying it over. Yep. Like we'll use yep. convolutional neural nets for images. Maybe for small molecules at my lab at Stanford, we used graph neural networks instead of convolutional neural networks. But to really tra- sort of develop an algorithm expi- explicitly for the biological problem is pretty rare. Yep. And I've always assumed it was because it's just hard to have the skill sets of a st- team strong on the biology domain and on the computer science domain. I'm curious to get your take or is it just rare to develop new new architectures in the first place?
2: <laughs> well, I think at the end of the day, what we're seeing is that the new architectures, while motivated by specific problems, if they truly make a difference, then they tend to also be applicable elsewhere. That doesn't, on the other hand, mean that on the way there, choosing carefully what the motivating applications and domains are wouldn't make a huge difference, and I think it it certainly does. And so actually I feel one of the key challenges here is really that we're not yet in a regime in, in biology where we have droves and droves of data, even though that, you know, compared to what we used to have a while ago, it's, it's amazing. But we're not in that regime yet where that's just sitting around on the equivalent of, you know, web or so, and we can you know, filter it a little bit, download it and be done with it. But instead, I think we have to create it uh, to, to a reasonably large extent. And that will not be done by deep learning experts, at least not by most of them. And I believe that has to happen in lockstep uh, with then also really understanding the peculiarities of, of said data, right? the kinds of noise that you encounter there, the fact that these are actually created in, you know, maybe very large scale pooled, uh, uh, high throughput experiments, but still and experiments that are run on different days by different experimenters and so on and so forth. And where the folks on uh, or with more of a deep learning background uh, work closely enough with folks with biology background, learn enough about what we know about the underlying phenomena to basically be inspired to try uh, interesting new approaches.
1: Well, I loved when you talked about just the example of the attention's all you need paper about how you wanted to get this div- diverse group of people whose passions were, you know, fairly orthogonal from each other. And in a sense, when you're doing this in biology, and, and especially for uh, what you're doing in inceptive, you also have to put all this work into generating the data. And generating the data really yep. means to be very explicit. That's running biological experiments at scale. Absolutely. Yes. And so exactly it it's... The input part itself is very expensive and very technical. And as you said, has so many ways of going wrong that, uh, but it sounds like you're building upon the culture that you've done before. And now it's just more experts with different passions, um, coordinating
2: in, in the analogous way. Yep. Yep. I really deeply believe that this is, at least as far as I can tell, the most promising avenue right now is, is to not aim for, in a certain sense, a, a pipeline model, yeah. where certain, certain data leave a lab in which they were created, uh, given the best of our knowledge about the underlying aspects of life, and then uh, starting to run existing deep learning approaches on it, and then tweak them, but instead really to actually have folks who, in a certain sense, they might be among the first people who are really uh, working in a discipline that currently doesn't really have a great name yet. Maybe the least common denominator is curiosity. That, that yes. extends beyond what, you know, what you've learned before and what you've maybe spent most of your time doing. We find that just like in very many other areas, what we are really after is, you know, a set of people with very diverse backgrounds, but that share who share really curiosity.
1: When do you think AI is right now for those harder problems for drug design or healthcare and so on? Like, where is it now? What, what has to be done? When will
2: it get there? I would expect And it's always very dangerous to make predictions about the future but i would be very surprised if within the next three years we wouldn't actually start to see an inclination point happening uh, when it comes to the real world effects of uh, machine learning large-scale deep learning in, in drug development drug design where exactly they'll be first of course i believe that a lot of them will happen around rna rna therapeutics and vaccines but that will certainly not be the only area affected by this, but I, I definitely think we're headed into the inflection point territory.
1: Now, so you make an interesting point, what is different about RNA? Because I think it's particularly interesting, not just that you went from Google brain into biology, but you went into RNA specifically. And what
2: attracts you to
1: RNA, especially maybe from a AI or ML point of view?
2: One thing that's interesting about RNA is combination between, as we now have seen, very broad applicability. Although it's still narrow in the sense of a single indication, but just looking at this wave of approval processes that is starting and has started, um, it's pretty clear that the applicability is very, very broad. Coupled with, in a certain sense, I know this is is a bit ambiguous, a structurally simple problem. And it's structurally simple, not in the sense that RNA structure prediction is simple, um, but it's structurally simple in the sense that it's a biopolymer with four different bases, We're not talking about over 20 amino acids. It's something that can be produced fairly effectively. There are some challenges there, but synthesis is something that can scale and is scaling rapidly. And these things come together really to enable this rapid feedback loop that I guess is often alluded to, but very rarely, at least from what I know, uh, actually really implemented and implementable at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Arguably, probably it's 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 a more rapid feedback loop, especially
2: for the way you go after it. Yes. And and given that I believe we need to actually create the lion's share of data for training the models that, that we're training, we are really investing at Inceptive into uh, creating such data at scale, increasing, and in, in I would say comparatively fairly massive scale. Given that RNA seems to be by far the best combination when it comes to the structural simplicity, but also the scalability of synthesis and, and this experimentation. There's huge potential here that so far has been untapped.
1: Yeah. And I, I think especially potentially the ability to have these rapid cycles, both sort of preclinical and therefore getting to
2: the clinic faster and being in the clinic shorter. Absolutely. That's really what we're, what we're hoping for, what we're also seeing maybe early hints, indicating that that might be the case. And that we're, of course, really, really excited about
1: thinking about like the last 10 years has been amazing you know 2012 yeah. To, yeah. To, to now what do you think the next 10 years looks like where do you think we are 10 years from now
2: with AI either broadly or especially for bio I think if it's really true that that we're entering this inflection point territory when we look back 10 years from now it'll seem like a revolution at least at least as large and as expansive as the one that we think we've seen in the last 10 years at the very yeah. least now I think there will be a crucial difference. And that is that it's not so clear exactly, you know, how broadly the revolution that we have been witnessing in the last 10 years affects everybody's lives. There are certain areas, search engines or assisted writing, et cetera, where it's evident, but it's not clear how broad, how broadly applicable this revolution is. And I believe that it is very much so, but we don't see it yet. I think the revolution that we're going to see specifically around bio over the next 10 years or that we're going to be looking back at 10 years from now will really differ in terms of its profound impact on all of our lives even just letting aside drug design and discovery applications there is such amazing applications in and around scientific discovery where you could now imagine that with a web interface you can basically have molecules designed that in certain organisms are with a very high likelihood going to answer certain questions yeah uh, producing more reliable readouts than you know what you previously could get at so even just leaving out the entire kind of complexity of how this will affect ultimately patients and everyone it is pretty clear i think that these tools will just rapidly accelerate fields like biology
1: that seems like a great place to end it thank you so much Yaka for joining bio
2: 12. thank you so much for having me
0: Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z, and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld at A16Z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures.